Hello, and welcome to episode 63 of the Medical Device Success podcast and videocast. I am Ted Newell, your host. Thank you very much for tuning in today. Today, we add to our In the C-Suite series with our guest, Daniel Clotier, CEO of Locke Corporation. Daniel and his team at Locke, and that's spelled L-O-K, capital L, capital O, capital K, provide worldwide representation for medical devices through their distribution network. At first, this sounds like a basic distribution service until you dig deeper. The network is 17,000 distributors strong. They have a sophisticated database so they can match products to the right distributors. They have a sophisticated dashboard management system so the manufacturers that they represent can see everything that is going on all around the world. Locke prefers to work with innovative and disruptive technologies. And venture funds, private equity, angels, and incubators frequently consult with them. This team of professionals based all around the world and multi-language capable no longer sounds very basic, does it? Understanding how the international distribution ecosystem works is a must for any medtech professional. This conversation with Daniel provides a window to this world and how Locke brings value to the manufacturers it represents. Now, in the show notes, I will include links to Daniel's LinkedIn profile and the Locke Corporation website. Also, Daniel is a member of the MedTech Leaders community, and you can learn more about MedTech Leaders at medtechleaders.net. Now, join me and Daniel to learn how the Locke Corporation powerhouse operates for the benefit of its manufacturers and patients worldwide. Daniel, welcome to the Medical Device Success podcast and videocast. Really appreciate your time today. My pleasure, Ted. Good morning to you, and thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's it's great. Great to have you here. And we, you and I've talked so many times over the last uh, several months. It's been really a, a lot of fun to get to know you, get to know more about your business and so on. Yes, same for me. Yeah. Cool. So... We've got a, a a number, like an outline that we're going to follow here, and you and I have gone through this. But first of all, just tell us about your role at Locke and just a little bit about Locke Corporation. Okay. Well, I'm the founder of the company, Locke Corporation. is a company of 16 years. Um, I was international sales director for an American public company and traveling all over the world. I saw there was... Um, an opportunity to have a global manufacturer agent, which was missing, I think, at that time. You have a lot of regional manufacturer agents. So, you know, they're going to do the German speaking in Europe or the French speaking or in LATAM or Southeast Asia. But nobody was structured globally. And I decided to, uh, to take the challenge. And uh, 16 years later, say we are, we are a global manufacturer agent. Now, how many distributors? 
are you currently working with? Or I, maybe it's not that you're currently working with, but what kind of pool do you have? I, and when I say pool, P-O-O-L, like what kind of <laughs> pool do you have to, to, to draw from for, these, for this distributor network? Well, you know, we have new distributors and you have distributors that are merging or stopping operating, but roughly we are around 17,000 distributors globally. Okay, 17,000. Holy cow. And another thing I was curious about, and I've never asked you in all the conversations you and I've had, is what does LOCK stand for? (laughs) I was nervous of the question that you were asking. Um, Well, nothing is really scientific behind LOCK operation. Actually, I should not be proud of it, but it doesn't mean absolutely nothing. Uh, I read a book uh, on the marketing that they were saying um, the name of the company that gets attention needs to have three letters. And part of the letters, you need to have a K or an X or a Z. And I was flipping, you know, three letters and L-O-K came. Um, the funny part today is if you reverse L-O-K, it's giving you K-O-L, keeping in leaders. <clears throat> but it was really not done on purpose. So no credit for that. That's that's interesting. Very good. That's the probably a, one of the more interesting naming stories I've had. <laughs> that's excellent. And when we look at international distribution, and I've got a couple comments about my own personal experiences with it, because I've spent uh, a fair amount of my career being the director of international sales, or um, I had as a part of my role of worldwide sales and marketing for one of the companies, I spent a lot of time overseas, you know, helping our distributors and so on. But what are the biggest challenges for manufacturers you know today when it comes to going international so you know there's several ways somebody can go international one it could be they're a startup company with a unique product and and they need to get traction overseas they don't have a lot of resources okay then the other the other possibility is an established manufacturer that is producing something a bit new. Maybe it doesn't really fit into their current um, uh, mode of distribution internationally, and they want to do something differently because it needs a special kind of attention. So what, but what are the challenges these people have? Well, there are several challenges that manufacturers are, are confront with. Uh, it can go from the regulatory standpoint, which today the regulatory are getting more and more uh, strict and uh, there's so much on the quality management system and the ISO 1345 and on and on. But on the commercial side aspect of where LOC is more involved, I think it's the value proposition, that, which is the biggest challenge for the manufacturer to really understand their value proposition. Uh, part of the value proposition, you have the clinical evidence. On the clinical evidence, unfortunately, it's very light. Manufacturer does their validation studies. They have one or two studies and they think they can go and conquer the world with that clinical evidence. So this is a a major problem for the manufacturers today, the clinical evidence, because showing the safety for the user and for the patient, it's quite easy. If you get FDA and you get CMR, you have the safety there. The, 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 The economical can be proven, although innovative technology most of the time will be more expensive. So you need to have a proper clinical evidence that's gonna come and show that you really have a better outcome to justify to pay more or that you're gonna save money at the end of it or you will have a better outcome on your patient. So 
These days, what we are finding out on our side is manufacturers should put more resources uh, to build their clinical evidence portfolio. So from case report, case study, observational trial, uh, everything that is included in the clinical evidence to pay more attention to this uh, specific point. Do some of the smaller countries that you help represent a company in, do some of these smaller countries, will, will they accept the clinical data from Europe and or the United States? Some of them, yes. But if you do studies in some of the countries where you want to have a reimbursement code, uh, you need to have sometimes a signature from doctors domestically in that country that's going to say, yes, it makes sense now. Let's make a study so that we can go through the reimbursement code. So that's a good way on your clinical evidence, you know, to arrive at manufacturers and give samples and have the product trial in the country so that you can start with a KP inhibitor, getting in that direction and building up to go for the reimbursement code with a real clinical study that's going to be required in the country. Right. And I know that, you know, you are pretty particular about the, you know, people that you bring in to represent the products that, that you represent. And another thing I think that you do is you, when you take on a product, you pretty much take it on, um, let's say it's a U.S. company, you take that product on worldwide. I mean, rest of world typically. So if, they're, if you're going to take the time to help champion a product around the world other than the United States, for example, you essentially want the rights to the rest of the world. Is that correct? Well, we have some manufacturers that we do also the U.S. market. So we do right. global for them as U.S. manufacturers as well. Uh, the rights, we have to be careful because people associate the right as a distributor. So we're not the distributors. We're not the right. master distributors. We're strictly there as a manufacturing agent. So we do sales and marketing support. So from identifying potential distributors. So in a country, you might have five, six different distributors that are potentially good for distributing your product. So we're going to do all the screening of these distributors. We're going to be contacting them, talking about the product, do the introduction call, do the pre-qualification. After that, we're going to bring the manufacturers uh, to do a presentation so that both parties can, can be introduced to each other. We're going to supply more information to the distributor to do their market assessment and supporting with keeping in leaders, either presentation from the manufacturers or directly supporting uh, the distributor on that topic. And if the distributor wants to move on, we're going to do a final qualification. It is part of the quality management system of the manufacturers as part of the, the ISO. So we are ensuring that the qualification is done and we're going to go all the way to the contract negotiation and signature of the contract. Now, at the end of the day, that distributor you know, is the manufacturer distributor, but we are doing the day-to-day business with the distributor, making sure for tenders and trade shows and everything that needs to be done on the day-to-day because manufacturers don't have enough resources to establish their network internationally, can be a barrier of less time zone, languages, and so many more factors. So we are doing the bridge uh, for a certain period of time uh, for these manufacturers to establish their channel of distribution. Right. So it's almost like you've just become the vice president of international sales and marketing for the manufacturer. Well, vice president is a big title, but yeah. uh, to, to be part of the to be yeah. part of the sales uh, sales department because most of the time, you know, if you're looking at an American company that would like to go on the European market and they will have to put somebody in Europe, 
it's very expensive with the benefits and everything that's around and you have it on on the clock every month you need to pay so we are a, a better options because you take advantage of all our account managers that are based from mexico to philippines that we're covering all the time zones and you don't have to pay us we are pay on success so we are paid on commission most of the time, depending on the formula that we work. So it's very advantageous for the manufacturers to get traction. And because of our network, we create a, a much faster traction for the manufacturers to establish their channel of distribution. Right. And I think it's important for uh, people to understand everything that you described a couple minutes ago, all the work that goes into properly selecting and then onboarding a manufacturer, I mean, a distributor in a foreign country. And there's some countries where you don't just want one distributor. You might need several due to the geographical differences and the cultural differences in different parts of the country. But the reason I point that out is one of my regular experiences is going to a U.S. trade show and running into one of my colleagues that has a... a you know, small, medium-sized company, anything from $1 million to, you know, $20 million in revenue. And I say, how's it going? And they're all excited because somebody from another country stopped by the booth and said, I can be your distributor. Do you have a distributor? No, I'll be your distributor. And they make an agreement just like that. They have, you know, and it's a market. It might be a market that has, who knows, 20, 30, 40, 50 million people if you were going to select somebody for, for a market size in the United States like that, you would have put them through several interviews. You'd have looked at their resume. You would have checked their references. I mean, in other, in other words, like a sales rep for your, yourself, you'd have put them through the nth degree to make sure you have a good person. But it just amazes me how many people don't do that type of due diligence. And then they don't realize the work that's really required to properly bring somebody on so that they're going to be effective. And definitely, and if you're looking on the time frame, you're signing a distributor, normally you have a contract for one year, but it's not unusual that you're gonna see contract for two, three years, depending on the, the region there. So, but let's assume it's a year. So the time that you see non-performance and that you terminate and that you start another distributor, you know, that's 18 months that you waste time there. Right. Uh, so this is why it's important when, when we look internally, we develop a tool uh, for pre-qualification, introduction qualification, and final qualification. And that system that we're having, a manufacturer can copy and paste in their own quality management system. And basically it makes it much easier for them to to show on, the, on an audit that they are vetting their distributor the right way. So we are critical suppliers for two aspects of the business, which is on the qualification and on the training. So we develop tools in these two, uh, these two points. Now, I don't know how you handle this, and I'm sorry, we don't, but it just came to my mind, and we don't have it on our page or our outline, so I hope I'm not ambushing you with this question. But one thing that I would regularly run into in the past when I was responsible for international was that in in some countries some distributors um well they wanted they wanted to register the product for you with the with the country's health organization the health administration and in doing that they own the registration for the product 
which makes any kind of divorce in the future even more difficult. Um, so that's one issue. But then there is another issue, and I, it, I don't know if it's Brazil or, but there are a couple countries where they almost require you to have the distributor get the um, health administration certification. How do you manage those uh, situations? Well, it basically depends on the manufacturer because today, uh, regulatory is very expensive. Yeah. Uh, if you're looking at the manufacturer standpoint in their own facilities, you know, they're going to have ISO 13485. They have to put their quality management system in place, which is very uh, complicated by itself. So it's a lot of money that they're spending there. Now, obviously, the FDA, the CMARC, either TGA or Japan or Health Canada or Envisa in Brazil, you know, some of the market, the manufacturer will want to own the certificate and some countries that it's not worth it. And even if you have a distributor taking over the regulatory and you are terminating that distributor, you can always cancel through the regulatory authorities and appoint another distributor. So you're going to waste time for bureaucracy to reapply with uh, with new documents. And sometimes, you know, it's complicated because you need to have the Chamber of Commerce, a postile legalize the embassy and everything that we know. But um, sometimes the cost of regulatory, it's not worth it for the manufacturers to cover it and not knowing what's going to happen in the market. Right. So we always recommend to to leave it to the distributor and uh, to have a plan B. And that's what we're working, to have a plan B on the market that if ever there's non-performance of that distributor, that we can, we, we're controlling the distributor on a monthly basis on our side and we are constantly in discussion. So it doesn't take us a year, a year and a half to see if something's going wrong with a distributor. So we can make, we can take action uh, quite rapidly and, and having a plan B for the manufacturer that they're not going to be penalized uh, on the market too long. Okay. Okay. Um, and then how many products are you managing or representing at any one time on average? Because I, and we'll talk about this in a second. We'll talk about, we'll talk about what happens when you have helped the company be really, really successful. And, and now they want to sort of take the reins completely. Right. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll get to that in a few minutes, but right now, you know, or on average, how many products are you representing or how many companies are you working with? At the present moment as today, we are working with 18 companies. Wow. Uh, there is some companies that are not on our website. Uh, most of the time, they are the big guy out there and don't want to show that they're working with the third parties. Uh, so we do represent uh, public companies that uh, we do globally for them, but it's not uh, announced uh, publicly. So that's okay. We respect uh, that fact. Uh, but generally speaking, it's roughly around 12, but we are launching new products every year and we do a transition of uh, manufacturer that have success and taking over. So phasing out on our side. And then, so then the next question, of course, the next logical question is, how does Locke successfully manage so many products across a spectrum of so many distributors? Yeah, well, I had the idea at the beginning to start Locke as a global manufacturer. And you have like, you have 67 categories in the hospital from pre-hospital to mortuary at the end. So every department, neonates, neuro, anesthesia, and ICU. So you have 67 categories. It's practically impossible to work with an Excel 
sheet or you know system. So you need to have right process and the right equipment. So I have the privilege to have a partner in the company as the vice president where um, we have completely different knowledge of um, the I'm somebody on the field is somebody internally can establish process and uh, having the technology to work in our favor. So we are very well equipped. We have Salesforce that it's been completely remodeled around our business model and not like normally you will be using the Salesforce. Uh, we have training platform that's been developed uh, directly internally that we are assuring the proper training of the distributor and every single rep of the distributor. And we went even further during COVID because nobody could do in-servicing of their technology in the hospital. So we even adapt our training platform for the end user to be able to get the training on the, on the technology uh, that we are representing. So um, we also have all the dashboard that are live. So they are refreshed every three hours where the manufacturer can follow everything that's going on uh, in the world. So they will see all the different stages that I was talking prior, you know, prospect, interested, decision process, negotiation, and distributors. And they will see their, the world map of the trade shows that the manufacturer is doing, the distributor is doing, which lock corporation are doing, uh, we can have the budget forecast. Everything is on the dashboard and and everything is working so smoothly. So obviously we need to do a lot of training with our people to be working with these tools. But we have uh, I have the privilege to have somebody internally that can put everything easy for us. Okay. And a minute ago, you mentioned Salesforce twice. So just for listeners to understand, that you're talking about Salesforce.com, the CRM um, management program. And, it, yes. and it was, it's, so it's been somewhat customized for you. Are you using that to create the dashboards you talked about? It's part of it. Uh, we okay. have other source of information. Uh, obviously, the customized, you know, we have 17,000 distributors. So they are already in our database. So we are working so we might have a distributor that is doing uh, strictly neuro and if we have product in neuro so we are involved with all the neuro distributors but at one point when we phase out the this product and if we don't have neuro product for like two years when we come back with another product of neuro you know we are reestablishing all the contacts because it's maintaining it's very rare that you have distributor that does only one category so we are constantly updating and in contact with these distributors. So it's very easy for us when we take on a new product to deploy. It's it's uh, very easy with the system. Yeah, no, it's great that you have it all built in and all all set up. You can scale. You can scale very quickly. Um, now, what about a product question? So let's let's assume that you've got. Uh, distribution pretty well set up for a company and its product or products you know you're probably adding distributors all the time as you keep rolling things out but let's just say you've got a, a reasonable number of countries up and active for a particular company and one of the distributors in one of these countries has a question perhaps a doctor poses the question to them or nursing staff or whatever and that question comes back do they go directly to the manufacturer with that question or are they working through you and or is it a combination of both it's a combination of both because it depends on the manufacturer some of the manufacturers wants to have the relationship with the distributors and even all the way to the end user 
um, and that's perfectly fine with us. So what we're going to do is we're going to facilitate uh, because sometimes you have the language barrier, sometimes you have the time zone. Uh, so for somebody on the East Coast in the US and having conversation with Japan is not always easy. So we're going to be able to bridge sometimes uh, to on the time zone for proper meetings or if it's language also. So we have people speaking Italian, Russian, Filipino, Spanish, French, German. So we have different languages internally so we can facilitate also on the translation. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that could be very, very important. Now, do you offer any marketing assistance? So a lot of what we've talked about up to now has been logistical, has been training, has been contract work, um, you know, and so on. And then, you know, keeping track of activity on a dashboard, like the, the sales process so that the manufacturer can see the progress is being made. But what about uh, marketing assistance is, is that also a combined responsibility with you and the manufacturer? I will say that generally speaking, <clears throat> the manufacturer does it and they do it very well. Sometimes we have startup that, you know, did focus on the product by itself and uh, did not uh, put a lot of effort in the marketing uh, material collateral. So sometimes we're going to be assisting them on what kind of brochure uh, because unfortunately, we saw people arriving with a 15 pages uh, PDF uh, brochure. But if you have the distributor that needs to print that for a trade show, it's not very convenient. So we've been helping some of the, our customer to, to adapt their marketing material and collateral for what it is uh, today. You know, some countries like to have the paper copy of trade shows and some of them want to be completely digital. So we adapting according to the region and the language and visual and respecting also uh, there is a religion and ethnic group and uh, cultural that we need to take in consideration when you do your marketing. What works in some countries doesn't necessarily work in another country on the visual. Right. So yes, we're assisting. We've been assisting also on Facebook and other pages for these manufacturers to, to follow with their customers on LinkedIn. So yes, but generally speaking, I would say 80% of the time, we don't have to. Right. And of course, with your big customers, the ones that, are, that you're representing in sort of a stealth mode, um, you know, those could be a 50, 100 million, $150 million company, right? So those are your big customers. And of course, they have a lot of resources to put toward marketing materials that you suggest or the, or the uh, local distributor requests. But let's talk about a startup that's just coming, that's commercializing cold, right? Right from the beginning. And, you know, you're taking a very unique product that has never existed before and has no standard of care compared to it. And you're taking that product, <clears throat> oh, into Mexico or Canada. Um, how do you advise them? And, and the reason I ask this question is because I, I noticed that a lot of companies, and you, in fact, you and I were talking about this before we formally got started this morning, but I run into companies that think that they can just sign up a distributor and they're done. But they've got this disruptive, disruptive product that has really no support and perhaps not a lot of evidence. How do you how do you counsel them and help move them in the right direction so that they can get tra get traction with this product? 
Well, we're covering globally. Okay, so we're global minus one because we're not working in North Korea. Um, but <laughs> I have to say minus one. But the the part of a lot of manufacturers when they want to go internationally, they're going to think of going with the big market first. And it's not necessarily good all the time. Uh, we did launch technologies where it was very good in smaller market to test and to. It was easier to get the clinical evidence and to build case studies and case report and and building up on the clinical evidence that doctor was moving forward and we could get good testimonial. And after that, when we we're attacking the biggest market, it was making life much easier because they were already user in the region. So, you know, if everybody in, in Europe, they're going to think about France, they're going to think about Germany, UK, Spain, Italy, uh, but you can do amazing clinical evidence on the Belgian market and, and the Benelux, you know, and that clinical evidence, it's much easier to do uh, than to do it in the other big five markets. And But once you have it, you can leverage on your big five countries. So... One of the biggest challenges, I think manufacturers don't have sampling budget in consideration. So if you have sampling of the device that you want people to use it, your key opinion leader needs to touch the product. They need to try the product. But the distributor that is making his market assessment with that key opinion leader doesn't want to pay for the product. You know, He's willing to support and observe and help to get the key opinion leader to use the product. But he doesn't want to have to buy, you know, a product that is either five hundred or fifteen hundred or twenty-five hundred dollars disposable, and have to buy five of six to do his market assessment. He wants the manufacturers to arrive with the proper clinical evidence and take it from there. So we we see this gap, and we try to go in that direction to not go very at large everywhere and giving sample at large, but to pick very specific market and to to get user to put their hands on the product and to use it. And that's, I think it's uh, making uh, things much, much more successful than trying to go everywhere at once. Okay. And then the next thing would be uh, that I referred to earlier is that a company has now been relatively successful using, um, all the tools and skills that Lock Corporation brings to bear. Their international sales are doing uh, very well. They've got traction in the U.S. They've got resources they may not have had before. And right or wrong, they decide that they want to take over um, all the international distribution responsibilities. How do you manage that transition? Well, it's very easy because... Our business model is built on, we are there temporary. You know, okay. we are there normally for two, three years with the manufacturers. Um, we take them, they don't have enough resources to build up their, their uh, channel of distributor internationally. So they're using us, but as they grow, they start hiring people internally. And we are perfectly fine with that. Uh, what what happened is we're going to do either a transition in a region. Sometime it happened that they're going to be putting a manager in a region and that manager will taking over. So we are phasing out that region to the manager. Sometimes we're still going to support for the qualification and everything that we're having on the training platform. But our business model is built on two to three years average time with the manufacturers. And we're passionate about innovation. So not that we want to get rid of our customer, but we are happy when they are successful because we can take more new technology. So that's uh, when they're phasing out, it's a success for us. So if they do, we're happy. 
Okay. And then you're trying to bring in new products. So I don't know if it was a month ago or a month and a half ago. And one of the conversations you and I were having, you made the comment that you actually have more people approaching you with products than you would like to take on and that you're relatively selective. How do you choose the products that you're going to decide to work with? Well, several years ago, unfortunately, our our reputation and our branding was not strong to have the privilege to refuse customer as not that I don't like the, the word refusing. It needs to fit in our mix of products as well. Uh, we are selling X-ray machine uh, at the moment from a company from South Africa, Lodox, that is very unique. Uh, it does a complete body X-ray in 13 seconds. So for trauma, this is amazing. And it's a new flow of working. This is a very expensive technology. So obviously, the sales process is not three months to sell a unit of these. So we need to have product, obviously, to, to have the cash flow management properly done on our side, we need to have disposable and low-end product. So we need to have a mix of low-end, mid-end, and high-end products all together. Now, the beauty these days that we have is we are known by venture capital, angel group. So we are approached to give our expertise on before they make an investment, if it's worth it, this product will have potential internationally. So working with all these venture capital and angel group and incubators, we kind of know what's coming on the market. So we see amazing technology and we're like, wow, this is going to be a game changer, but it's going to arrive only in a year. So we're going to be planning ahead uh, to make sure that we can take this product when it's going to be uh, uh, released and ready to go. So, you know, technology like Sense Neuro, which is going to be a game changer on the market for sure. So we are working with them for two years, assisting them, and the product will arrive on the market next year. So for us, this kind of technology, knowing it in advance, obviously we're going to make room in our portfolio to take this product on board. I think you made a couple really interesting points uh, just now that I want to reemphasize to listeners, viewers, and attendees. One is that you participate not just as a pure you know, manufacturer's representation organization that helps with distributors, but you're actually part of a deeper ecosystem that goes all the way back sometimes to the organizations that are funding these businesses, the venture capital, you know, family, family um, equity businesses, private equity, whatever it might be. You're part of a deeper ecosystem re- related to some of these newer innovative products. That's one thing I want to make really clear. The other thing that you spoke about, which could have been misinterpreted from the our early part of the conversation, some of you might think, well, yeah, Lock Corporation is helping out with some simple disposable products. No, not at all. You're working with some really complicated technical products like the Lodox product out of South Africa, and I've looked at their website before. That's an amazing product. What do you think the end user cost of that is? on average? Well, I, I'm not going to go into detail on the pricing because, you know, it's still a competitive market out there. Yeah. And there's a lot at the moment at uh, cooking and different countries for this kind of tenders that are coming out. So I will not want to disclose right, right. the numbers here. But, you know, we have products in our portfolio that it's sold at a dollar, a dollar fifty. 
and we have products that can go all the way to 450,000 right. you know, on other technologies. So if you're looking the range, I would say that we are not a lot on the low-hand product. We are doing them because it's it's easier for, I would say, to move things faster. And sometimes we like the technology. We need to like, the, it needs to be innovative technology. So a $1.50 product can be very innovative and make a difference. So yes, we are excited as much as selling a Lodox. Uh, which is making a big difference. But we have everything in between. We have a lot of $50,000 technology that we're selling uh, on transfer uh, to distributors. So the pricing is not really uh, the point here. It's the innovation. Is that going to make a difference for the on the market? And that's, that's what's important for us. We're driven by passion with innovation. Right. But sometimes pricing does reflect a complexity like the Lodox system. And I think it's important for people to understand that Lock Corporation can handle that kind of complexity in terms of the products. In addition to being very innovative, that's not off the board, you know. And um, I think that's a real compliment to your team and to your organization. I think it's really great. Okay, so we've covered a lot of things. And the next question sort of goes to leadership and management or the next couple questions because for listeners and then viewers and attendees, we're looking at Daniel here. He's very comfortable in his office. He's got a great view out the back. And no, that's not a, that's not a virtual filter. That is a live view of St. Petersburg, Russia. And so we have this uh, Canadian CEO in St. Petersburg, Russia, and he's managing a company that's headquartered in Montreal or Montreal, however you want to pronounce it from wherever you're from. <laughs> so how do you do this? I mean, what kind of, I don't know, management tools do you use to work the rest of your team and to just stay on top of this stuff like you do? Well, it, it, you know, today I think it's even more appropriate to talk about working remotely i think covid brought us you know to that reality we were there before right um, you know several years ago we were having an office and when i went to rent the office i was happy to say that it's going to be 15 minutes for me to go to the office in the morning so i was like okay 15 minutes no big deal uh, what i forgot at that time is to do this travel time during rush hour in the morning. So um, when uh, I started going to the office, it took me an hour, an hour, 15 minutes to go to the office. And I was, I realized that I was wasting a full day of work in my car and I'm not the most productive person in a car. Uh, I, I know there's people, they can make conference call, they have posted everywhere and they can do everything. Me, when I'm driving, I need to drive. Um, so it, I was very losing a lot of precious time. So we decided to put everybody home and to work remotely. And it was the best decision. And when COVID happened, you know, it did not really affect anything on our side. So yes, I'm 6,500 kilometers from the headquarters. But for me, I, I don't see the difference being in Montreal, being here or being in Tokyo or anywhere else around the world. It's the same thing for me. We're working with people. And today we have the technology to, read pe to reach people. Uh, we don't have trade shows. 
unfortunately, but trade shows are starting to get back. I'm looking at people on LinkedIn and they're all happy to have pictures in their booth with the products. So we're getting back. We are exhibiting at a lot of international exhibition from Indian Fair to Hospitalar in Brazil and Medica. You know, we have a big booth at Medica uh, usually. So we are present normally around the year to meet all our people. So we don't have the walk-in in our office. So it doesn't really, uh, we don't really need one. Right. And we'll divert to the trade shows for just a second. So I noticed that I think on your website or someplace I noticed an image of Locke at Medica. Mm-hmm. You had a really large booth there to represent, you know, all the companies that you work with. Um, is that an expense that you bear or do the companies pitch in a little bit to help support that exhibition? Because that's an important exhibition. It is. We, we do cost sharing, but obviously we bear uh, because what we try to do for our manufacturers, if you go to Medica, well, I don't know what's going to happen with COVID, but prior COVID, if you wanted to have a booth at Medica, you would be on a waiting list. So you will not necessarily have a booth there. You mm, could okay. go with your pavilion of your country. You know, if you have mm-hmm. uh, Canada have four times 72 square meters, the US pavilion, every country have its pavilion uh, around Medica. So you get either a six square meters or 10 square meters or uh, um, uh, three square meters, 10 feet, 10 uh, feet square. Um, and it's quite expensive and you have to stay with the rules of Canada. Canada, it's red and white, you know, so you don't arrive with your colors and do what you want to do. You stay with the red and white and it's quite expensive actually. And when we find out the price, we're like, okay, it's, it's not worth it for us. So it's cheaper for our customer to come in our own booth. We charge them probably half the price that they will have to pay. But we have a traffic of qualified distributors that are coming. So at the last medical that we participate, we have 655 distributors meeting that was taking place over these four days with our, our manufacturers. Plus wow. all the people. So we, you know, people, distributors know where we are. We are usually in all 13. We are at the same place. We have 72 square meters there. They know where we are and they're coming. So we don't even have to send invitations. And then how did COVID affect international management of products? You know, so we had the initial surge of COVID all around the world in 2020. Now this year we're struggling with resurgence, the Delta variant and so on. How has this affected, um, you know, the international management of, of distribution of products? Well, at the beginning on when COVID start, Obviously, every single distributor around the world was trying to find ventilator. You know, <laughs> that right. was the keyword. Everybody was on the mask and the PPE and ventilators and everything related to that. So there are some distributors out there who did massive amount of money to on the respiratory. Unfortunately, you have some distributor out there that did not have any respiratory products. So they've been suffering a lot because they everything stopped for them. So we saw a big increase for respiratory product, obviously. Uh, And unfortunately, after that, uh, everybody was kind of standby because when the second wave uh, came, everybody was like, okay, what's going to happen? So every distributor was standby. They could not go to the hospital. So obviously, innovative technology was kind of put on hold uh, everywhere around the world because distributor did not know what would happen. So what we are seeing 
on our side is back in April, we start seeing uh, an increase in the activities towards distributor with new products, innovation, technology. It was confirmed in May. It was confirmed in June. Now we're like, okay, is that going to be continuing the momentum after the vacation? And we came back and it is there. So now we're seeing distributors are resilient to take new product, uh, to diversify and to go with innovation technology. And obviously manufacturers are very happy, but unfortunately impatient. We have to give time. We don't know what's going to happen with budget because we're going to have to pay at the end of the day all what we spend. How are we going to pay for that? I think it's a big question mark and we don't know what's going to happen with uh, budget in the hospital. But I think distributors are resilient now. We need to move on. We need to continue. There's countries that are open. There are countries that are still uh, not fully open, but we're, we're seeing momentum of positiveness on the field. Okay. And what advice do you have for other company leaders that are working in this environment today? I mean, because at Lock Corporation, you've been working in a so-called virtual environment for a long time. Sure, in the past, as you told me in previous conversations, every once in a while you could get on a plane and go to Montreal and work on stuff and then come back. But that's a little bit more difficult these days. Um, how, what, what kind of advice do you have for other company leaders when it comes to uh, maintaining morale and managing people more virtually and so on? Well, there's two aspects on the business side. I think that um, all these Zoom and Team and all these platforms show us that we can be more efficient on the virtual side to have some of the discussion. Um, trade show will remain trade shows. People want to touch the product. People need to meet people face-to-face. So the trade show part will be good. Where I think we were wasting a lot of time and money and and we're not efficient is these small trip that we were doing, you know, one, two days and take a trip, plane, you go to a country, you take a train, go meet the person, you're there for two hours, you go for lunch and go back by train, go back to the city, wait for the next morning to take your flight back to come back in the country. At the end of the day, you spend two days where today that same meeting can be done in two hours on, on Zoom or whatever platform you're using. And you have all the rest of the time and you're sitting at home or at the office and being way more efficient. So I think this, this is an adaptation that we need to do. Uh, we were there before, but uh, it just amplified with COVID. So it's good because we've been able to continue our relationship with our distributor that we were doing previously more on phone call. Now we are doing more on the two-dimension Zoom or Team or any platform that we're using. That aspect is important. Now, a lot of manufacturers or a lot of customers, a lot of companies now had to switch to the virtual world and were having questions like, oh, how do I do this? How do I control my employees? How do I trust them that they're going to be working and not doing anything? You know, we see all these advertisements, the guys in short on the beach and they have a panel in the back. Yeah. That, uh, <laughs> so we have all these things that uh, that exist, and, but, you know, it's, uh, it's commercial. I think if you don't trust your employee at the base when you hire your people, I think there's a problem in your HR department right away there. But there's a lot of way to control people, you know, on the workflow. But the key word, I think, is communication. 
if you have a good communication with your team and people are constantly in communication, it will be, I think, more efficient than what was waste in the office. You know, somebody coming, knock, knock on the door. You were in the middle of something very important and now they were distracting you at the coffee machine or wherever they were going. I think people think that we were more efficient in the office because we were having this physical contact. I don't think. I think we are more efficient today with that mix hybrid that we're going to be doing office and virtual work office. And we have all the tools, you know, we have very amazing CRM system today, platform that improve for connection and communication. So I think it's, uh, it's the new reality. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it requires that somebody be more focused and more attentive to what they're trying to get out of a meeting. Um, because in the past, when you were face to face, it was just so easy to call a meeting and not really be that well organized, just, you know, waste some time on one subject, finally get to the, the subject at hand. Uh, but it was always a disorganized um, way of doing things. And so this does offer the opportunity to be more disciplined, a little bit, actually a little bit more rigorous and, you know, scheduled. Um, I agree. And I just did a, a talk about tools. The last podcast I just put out this weekend, I'm going to try to get the video cast up today in the community here, is a, a product called Vidi Plus out of Israel. I don't know if you've heard of it, V-I-D-I-P-L-U-S. But what he does is um, he's positioned like over at the side of his Zoom screen, and he has a little control panel. And he and where he can put all the elements of things that he wants to present, so he doesn't have to share and unshare. Mm. And he can have videos, you know, websites, YouTube video, PowerPoint, PowerPoint spreadsheets, whatever. And suddenly, it just uh, oh, my, I got my screen reversed. Suddenly, it's yeah. right here, and he can yeah. look at it like he's actually looking at it, even though it's not there. But it looks like it's there, right next oh. to him. And it, he had like a beating heart that he could then make it look like he was going to twirl with his hand and then he can reach into it. And there's this transparency control. So you can reach into it and suddenly the tip of his finger is a bright pointer and he can point things out. So let's say, let's say that, um, Lodox, Lodox, um, uh, MRI, he could, he had a whole MRI in the image. He brought an MRI in and then he can explode it. So all the different parts are shown and he could point things out for, let's say it's a service call or he's pointing out a feature to an end user. So it's amazing the tools that, wow. that are coming out. Uh, it was, I was pretty fascinated by that. Well, I'm uh, looking forward to uh, to look into this thing because uh, the, the visual is important, obviously, in the presentation. Yeah. And most of the time we try to explain something without sharing or sometimes when we're sharing, it's kind of boring because you have to go through 27 slides presentation where there's a lot of material that you don't really need. Exactly. So, uh, I'm looking uh, really forward to look into this thing. Just the clarity and for clarity, Lodox, it's an X-ray machine. So not that okay. people Sorry. looking for, no, yeah. no, that people looking for an MRI coming and say, where's the MRI on Lodox? <laughs> <clears throat> they will not find any there. Yeah. In fact, um, and so most of the listeners, people have listened to the podcast and or and or viewed, you know, video casts in the past. We spent a lot of time last year on virtual meetings, you know, how to improve virtual meetings. And so when you talk about um, PowerPoint, there are tools 
in PowerPoint that nobody ever uses that can really help you jump from one thing to another so that you don't flip through the slides like you would normally do if you're face to face, you go, oh, I'm going to flip through these because they don't matter for this presentation. You go click, 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 click. Well, it looks terrible virtually. But actually, I have to tell you something. I uh, did listen to that podcast uh-huh. <laughs> and we did integrate it in, in our own presentation because okay. we have we have internal presentation and we did took the advice from uh, the person that was on your podcast, which I don't remember the name. David Parody, a fellow Canadian. That David, yes. we follow and we have some of the presentation. And if David is listening, yeah. I have to say big thank you because we uh, it's integrated now in our PowerPoint presentation. Awesome. I'm glad to hear that. Okay. So we've got these tools. We can be more effective virtually. And that isn't going to change going forward because healthcare executives have been interviewed. There's been surveys. And if you look at the total totality of the surveys, something like 65, 70% of healthcare executives and healthcare uh, practitioners, uh, healthcare professionals indicate that they like the virtual tools and they expect to continue post COVID. So we've got to continue this. Anything, any other recommendations you have? Is there anything you read or that you, that you um, like international newsletters or any books that you prefer or anything like that, that, that you I read a lot. I go everywhere, but you know, there's, there's a lot of information out there these days. And I, I think people need to narrow down the, on the interest. You know, we, we are part of different ecosystem. You know, you were mentioning earlier on the financial side. So we are with the Red Crow uh, ecosystem in the right. U.S. where they have a lot of different partners. We are part of it. Um, there's a lot of incubators. There's a lot of association out there helping uh, startup to do things better. So I think I think people need to to search wider because when you narrow on the book, the book is good. But uh, for me, I, I like to go a little bit everywhere internationally and having the different opinion and different way of thinking. Um, that's the beauty of the world. People don't think the same in every country. So mixing all that together sometimes bring you with a new strategy that can be uh, useful. So, but I don't sure. have anything uh, really specific. Okay, so, uh, no, I that's okay. Everything. And I, we do have two uh, attendees, um, Eric Rugart and Jean, I hate to screw up your name, Jean uh, Ortel, perhaps. They are newer members of the MedTech Leaders community. Um, if you have a question for Daniel and you want to put it in the chat, please feel free to do that uh, while we get close here to wrapping this thing up. Um, Thank so you for, for anything I miss? Anything I missed, Daniel? Um, in our um, conversation, we covered well, there, a lot of ground. This has been great. We cover a lot. There, there's a lot to talk. Obviously, we can define things more precisely. Um, you know, we are involved with with the military uh, also on our side. So we work with the Center of Excellence and uh, of the NATO in uh, in Europe. So even if I am based in uh, Saint Petersburg in Russia, lock, we are there to save life of people, no matter what color, religion, countries, or anything that you are when in choose where we're born and which religion and everything. So uh, we are Pacific on this side for the technology to save life. Uh, but we also, we have another company, sister company, Luck3A, that people can look because this is something that we value a lot. Um, unfortunately, there are some countries that cannot use the actual technologies the way that they are developed. 
So um, because of the power grid or because of the cost. So we, we made a mission in Lock 3A to make the adjustment with the manufacturers to adapt their technology. So either with solar energy, and we're going to be happy to associate ourselves to some projects that are existing or coming. Uh, just to give you a quick example, there's the University of Calgary in Canada that uh, adapt an oxygen concentrator for kids, uh, the child less than five years that have pneumonia to give them constantly oxygen 24 hours a day with solar energy adapted for their oxygen concentrator. They reduce, they have 19 clinics in, the, in Africa. They reduce the mortality rate by 58%. So it's, it's just showing that it doesn't need a lot to adapt. So obviously manufacturers are not looking to do and to go in that direction. But on our side, we are very concerned and we want to make sure that we can uh, have these countries in South America or Africa or Southeast Asia. So the 3A is for these region and we're going to be focusing to adapt the technology for this market. So this and is are you, that are you helping in, in, the, in the design process for this or also helping with the manufacturing when you when you assist a company in sort of getting outside the box in terms of the way their product was originally designed? Well, manufacturers don't want to waste time and money on that side. So we had to, to come up with a solution. So we uh, we are in a joint venture with a company in India, which is a contract manufacturing plan there, so that we're going to be adapting their technology. And we're also working with another company in Mexico that do all the testing and R&D and can be designing and helping on the development of that technology. So with our partner in Mexico and with our partner in India, we're going to be able to adapt these technologies uh, to, to these markets. So we already have uh, there's another company in the U.S., which is Little Sparrow, where they have the jaundice uh, phototherapy that they adapted their technology also to solar energy. So um, uh, we're having a nice project now that's going to be starting in India and uh, for the, all the rural uh, region of India to have the transport of these patients where they have jaundice, which is a big problem for uh, for kids. That's terrific. Wow, what a great thing to do. We'll have to... Um maybe do a podcast about that sometime in the future and really focus on lock 3a that's a tremendous service all right well we're we're pretty much um through the program i really appreciate you spending the time today this has really been interesting and informative you know beyond my wildest expectations so um i i really do appreciate it thank you so much and pleasure, it's for me, but don't forget, we do podcasts on our site as well. Yes. So you are the guest of our next CEO coffee, and okay. I will make sure that you get an invitation. So it was a real pleasure for me to be, uh, to be on your uh, podcast all of, anytime. During my career, I had responsibility for international sales at several companies. In one case, I lived in France for the better part of a year. This conversation reminds me how complex, demanding, and time-consuming international distribution can be. At the same time, it is very, very interesting. Daniel's operation is impressive, isn't it? Not only can they ramp up distribution for a medical device manufacturer quickly, they can also help redesign and manufacture alternative models that may be better suited for third-world markets. Now you know more about maximizing the international distribution system. I certainly know more. 
and I like this model that can transition with the way your company grows. Thanks again for spending time with us today. If you like the podcast, please recommend it to a friend, rate it, and or subscribe. Now go win your week.